God's word this morning, that psalm says, be sweeter to us than honey, as we open it from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 40, on page 1019 in your pew Bibles, you may recall on Christmas Day, we looked at the circumcision of Jesus and his presentation in the temple 33 days later, I'm setting the tone for the rest of his life as one of obedience to God's law five times in that passage, it reminded us that everything he did, even in his infancy, was according to God's law. And we see that same pattern continue now as Jesus goes out to the temple for the feast of the Passover, as it tells us that he grows in wisdom and in stature and continual obedience and submission of his parents. And we see in this passage the obedience of Christ And yet we also see the heart and mission of Christ as well as both his divinity and his humanity. Read with me Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 40. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Congregation, we've just celebrated Christmas. There are in some families certain traditions, certain things you like to do every year as you celebrate, perhaps certain things that you like to watch every year around Christmas time. For many, there is a movie about a young boy who's left home alone, whose parents accidentally leave him behind. They go on their Christmas vacation. And when mom and dad are away, you see what he's really like. You, you see the, the kinds of things that he likes to get into. Um, so with Jesus, in our passage, he is here left behind by his parents, not in their house, but in his father's house. And when mom and dad are away and Christ is left all alone, you see what he's like. 
What are his passions? What are the, the things that, that capture the, the, the imagination and the attention of this 12-year-old boy? It's not movies and mischief and junk foods, but it's the things of his heavenly father. This is the only passage that we have in the whole Bible about Christ's childhood, and it it sets before us a rather compelling portrait of pre-adolescent piety for which we give thanks. As this too, of which we just read in those 13 verses, is part of the obedience that was necessary for our salvation as it also sets before our children something of an example as they and we likewise seek to be about the things of our Heavenly Father. And so as we look at this passage this morning, boys and girls, I want you to notice uh, four things. I want you to to see how um, Jesus is about the things of his Heavenly Father. First of all, strengthened by the grace of God. Second, taught by the Word of God. Third, conscious of his relation to God. And then fourth, intent on doing the will of God. Christ is always about the things of his Father, strengthened by the grace of God, taught by the word of God, conscious of his relation to God, and intent on doing the will of God. Look at me first at verse 40 and verse 52, where it tells us that Jesus is strengthened by the grace of God. It says that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the the favor or grace of God was upon him. Then in verse 52, it tells us again that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor or grace with God and man. The ESV in both of those places um, translates the the Greek word as favor, but it's, it's rendered in the Uh, The New King James, the NIV, the NASB as grace because it is the Greek word charis, grace. Jesus grew in grace. He was strengthened by the grace of God. This does not in any way imply that he is sinful. The word grace does not have to imply that the object be a sinner. But it simply means that Christ in his human weakness... As he grew, he did so with God's help. Is that not what we're saying just before the service? Jesus grew in power and wisdom through the spirit of the Lord. To the sacred scriptures open, grace and truth on him outpoured. Christ in his humanity was the object of the empowering grace of God's spirit. Calvin said that that Christ, having voluntarily taken on human weakness and limitations, therefore received in his human nature, according to his age and capacity, an increase of the free gifts of the Spirit. That out of his fullness, he might pour them out on us, for we draw grace out of his grace as he grew in his human nature, in wisdom, and in the grace of God, as Luke 2.52 says, it was by God's spirit. Calvin, again, says, whatever wisdom exists among men, including the man Christ Jesus, flows from that single fountain, the spirit of God. God poured the strengthening grace of his spirit out on his incarnate son. 
that he might grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. This is really an astounding statement about the humanity of our Lord, of all the passages that we've considered in recent weeks about the incarnation of Christ Jesus. This is perhaps the most profound. That the child grew. That he, the the eternal one, the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, that he took on weakness that he might increase. And not only physically, but even in wisdom and in grace. That he took upon himself human ignorance, having to learn and be taught. He had to learn the Hebrew alphabet. He had to be taught the Psalms, where yes, in his divine nature, he knows all things. But again, to quote Calvin, Though God and man are united together in one person, it does not follow that the human nature receives what is peculiar to the divine nature. But so far as was necessary for our salvation, the Son of God kept his divine power concealed. He had access to it, but voluntarily assumed ignorance, choosing to have to grow not only in body, but also in mind to be made like his brothers in all things except for sin. Such was the condescending mercy of God the Son, that he received a nature that had to grow not only in body, but also in mind. That the omnipotent one assumed a body that had to grow through all the normal stages of human development, as did his mind. The omniscient one, the all-knowing, assuming ignorance for us. Is that not the kind of thing that we see in Mark chapter 13? Where Christ says that not even the Son knows the hour of his coming. He's speaking of his own ignorance as the timing of his second advent in his human nature. It's almost impossible for our minds to comprehend But the gospel writers are emphasizing for us that Jesus really was a man. As the church father Irenaeus said, he did not despise or evade any condition of humanity nor set aside in himself those laws that he had appointed for the human race. But he sanctified every age by passing through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, A child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age, being at the same time an example to them of piety and righteousness. Becoming a youth for youths, an example to youths, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. He passed through and and dignified every age and stage of human development as an adult, a child, a baby, that he might be savior to all that he might dignify each age and stage, and that he might also be able to sympathize with us. That he might be able to teach us obedience. And so, boys and girls, what, what that means for you when you're frustrated by catechism memory work or homework at school this next week as you start back up, Christ knows the challenges that you face 
or when you're annoyed by, by some of the, the physical aspects of, of human development, unwelcome blemishes on your face, Christ knows. And not only can he sympathize with your frustrations, but he also passed through every age and stage of human development so that he might be your example in serving the Lord and growing in grace and wisdom in those stages. Strengthened by the grace of God, he might impart that same grace to you. That's what we see in verse 40 and in verse 52. As we move along in the passage in uh, verses 41 through 47, we see one of the means by which God communicated that grace and wisdom to Jesus through word and sacrament. As we see the boy Jesus in the temple, we see the means by which he is strengthened in the grace of God is through being taught the word of God. It says that his parents every year, as the kind of law-abiding family that we saw on Christmas Day, we go up to the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12, it, it tells us that he went with them, and that afterward he stayed behind in Jerusalem, where they then found him three days later, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. We see here the interest of the boy Jesus in being taught the word of God. Notice in those three verbs that are used of him in verse 46, the receptive posture of the boy Jesus. Makes me think of question 160 in the Westminster Larger Catechism where it asks what is the kind of posture that we are to have as we hear the word of God taught and preached to us. And it speaks of a humble meekness sitting beneath the word of God. That's what we see here in Jesus. It says they found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Now, of course, it goes on to say that, that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, for this is the one of whom we sang in Psalm 119, who has more wisdom than his teachers and more insight than the aged. But nevertheless, he sits at their feet and listens. Here we see the hunger and thirst that Jesus has for the word of God sitting at the feet of those he knew more than, that he might hear God's word. He loves the scriptures. And so he loves to go to the place where he might be taught them. As he says in verse 49, I must be in my father's house. Again, boys and girls, leaving an example for you and and for all of us of the kind of eagerness that we must have to hear the word of God taught to ask questions of our our teachers, our pastor, our parents. If Jesus felt the need to be taught the word of God sitting at the feet of those he knew more than, how much more do we? Even teachers or preachers, we may feel we have little to learn from. Jesus teaches us by his example to assume a humble posture and receive from them the word. The very nourishment we need if we would grow in wisdom and in grace. And yet, yet notice how we see from Jesus not only an interest in the audible word, but also the visible word. As what occasions this whole episode is the Passover feast that he went to observe. That so draws him back to learn more. So he says in verse 49, I must be in my father's house. 
It's as if the, the, the visible word that he has just beheld ignites in his heart a desire for more. And in fact, that visible word that he has just beheld teaches him about his very vocation. As the boy Jesus beheld the whole priestly service that would be fulfilled in him, the true high priest and true Passover lamb. Can you imagine the 12-year-old Jesus watching that ceremony, perhaps for the first time, and, and connecting all of the dots in his growing human understanding that what was pictured in that Passover lamb being slain was exactly what he had come to this earth to do. Luke is going to pick up this, this Passover theme again in Luke 22, where Christ is revealed as, as the true Passover lamb at the Last Supper. But here we see it for the first time as it speaks of the very vocation of the Christ who witnessed it. As he is taught by the word of God, not only audibly, but visibly, he is taught of his very vocation, his very mission. That he is the one, these sacrifices and ceremonies of the law foreshadow, who will shed his blood as our substitute like that Passover lamb. As we heard in our assurance of part of that he is the propitiation for our sins, the substitute who sheds his blood and dies, bearing the wrath and judgment of God in our place. And as the boy Jesus witnesses all of this, he is irresistibly drawn to remain in the temple and hear more. Or months ago when I was preaching from Psalm 26, um, Andrew Bonar said of that psalm where, where David, the, the type of Christ, says, I love to go about God's temple. I love to be in his holy place. Bonar said, Christ loved the, the types and that typical temple because they showed forth his work. They showed forth what he had come to do. And so here he lingers with the teachers of the law in the house of God to be strengthened by the grace of God and to be taught by the word of God. May Jesus' soul longing to be in the place where he could learn of the promise of salvation find its echo in our hearts that we too would be people who love to be taught the word. Even in cases where we think that we know better than the one teaching it, to learn from Jesus' example, to nevertheless squeeze out every drop of truth we can to be nourished by that we might grow in grace and wisdom. As we do that, let us also not neglect the sacraments like the, the Passover or its New Testament counterpart, the Lord's Supper, which likewise instruct our minds and nourish, strengthen, and refresh our souls. As we confess in, in the Belgian Confession. That's why we look forward to coming to this table next week. It is the very food and drink of our souls along with the word, the means by which we are strengthened in the grace of God. So let us ready ourselves to come and buy it even to teach our children as Joseph undoubtedly did with Christ. Jesus was strengthened by the grace of God. He was taught by the word of God. And then next we see that he was also conscious of his relation to God. As his parents finally realize that he is not with them and eventually go and search for him and on the third day they find him in the temple and Mary says, why have you so treated us, son? We've been searching for you everywhere in great distress. It's interesting, this, this appears to be one of the, the first, in Luke's gospel, the first fulfillment of what Simeon 
said to Mary that a sword would pierce her own soul, that she would suffer great things on account of this unique son that she is raising. She says, we've been in, in great distress. You've, you've, you've caused us anxiety. But then notice Jesus' response. He says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And actually, that word house isn't literally in the Greek. It's literally, did you not know that I must be about the, the things of my father, which, which certainly includes God's house, but it's also broader than just God's house. Now, Jesus is saying, my relationship, mom, with, with my heavenly father transcends even my relationship with my earthly father and mother. He is not disrespectfully, but very gently correcting his mother and telling her my primary and foundational relationship is the one that I have with my heavenly father, and so I must be about the things of my father. Here we see a boy who is conscious of his relation to God. In fact, he uses a term that, that's, that's really somewhat foreign to the Old Testament. So, though the Old Testament did speak of, of Israel as God's son and of God as father, he was really thought of it as father in more of a, a general sense. And we don't really have this kind of, of language of someone speaking of God so specifically and so personally and directly as my father. And yet, of course, Jesus is the eternal son of God. And so he's eager to go to that place where his heart could, could echo the, the joy that he had known from eternity as the pre-existent son of God. He is conscious of his divinity. He is conscious of his relation to God. He is conscious of his mission. He is conscious of, of the primacy of this relationship above every other human relationship. Even his parents which Christ will actually pick up in Luke chapter 8 when he says that, that my mother and, and brothers are those who hear God's word and do it. He's saying family relationships are, are secondary to spiritual. And then Jesus will place that same demand on us in Luke chapter 14, which you heard last week, that we must be willing even to separate from family relations for the sake of the gospel because our relation to our heavenly father is primary. Jesus teaches us just that as he is conscious of his relation to God as son of the Father. So we must be conscious of our relation to God as sons in the Son. Jesus here is conscious of his relation to God as his heavenly Father. And so we, as we confess in Lord's Day 13, are made sons in the Son, adopted by grace into this same spiritual family, we must be conscious of that first and foremost above all else. J.C. Ryle says, must therefore ask ourselves the question, are we about the things of our Father too? He says this must be a mark at which we aim in daily life, a test by which we try all our habits and conversations. It should quicken us when we begin to be slothful, and it should check us when we're inclined to go back to the world. Are we about our Father's business? Do we love his house? Like David in Psalm 26 and Psalm 27, is God's house sweeter to us than even our own? Christ, in this passage, teaches us what kind of priorities we're to have. 
And again, towards the start of a new year, a good thing to be reminded of, that our most important relationship in this life is our relation to God, which supersedes that of family, that of friends, that of nation, and is determinative with regard to everything we say and do. As Jesus had to be about the things of his Father, so should we. We must love his house. We must love his word. We must love his people. We must love everything about him and hate everything else in comparison to him. So Christ teaches us by his example. He's always about the things of his Father, strengthened by the grace of God which he gives to us too, taught by the word of God which he shares with us also, and conscious of his relation to God which we share in him. And because of all of this, he is intent on doing the will of God, as we must be also. Because he is strengthened by the Spirit of God, because he has been taught by the Word of God, because he is, he is conscious supremely of his relation to God, we see Jesus also in verses 51 and 52 intent on doing the will of God. There in those last couple of verses, Luke clarifies uh, just in case we, we might have thought that Christ was being disrespectful in verse 49, or just in case we somehow missed that Jesus must be in his father's house, and so he wasn't disobeying his parents by staying at the temple, but rather obeying his heavenly father. Just in case we might have missed that, Luke emphasizes for us in verse 51, as if written in, in bold or, or highlighted and underlined, that Christ was continually submissive to his parents. I say continually because the Greek word for was submissive expresses continuous obedience and, and, and the function of verse 51 in the Gospel of Luke is to sum up all of his subsequent life until chapter three at his baptism. Kent Hughes says this, this obedience that we see here flows from Jesus being aware of his relation to his heavenly father in verse 49. Because he knew who he was, he could profoundly obey. It was his awareness that God was his father that undergirded his human obedience to Mary and Joseph. An obedience, by the way, like his learning from those flawed teachers in the temple. An obedience that is to flawed parents who are his moral inferiors. And yet, nevertheless, he submits himself to them. Remember, we just saw a few verses before this. They lost their son. And then Mary appears to chide him for what was their mistake. And yet Jesus joyfully submits to them. Boys and girls, if Jesus can submit to his sinful and flawed parents like that, you can submit to yours when you think that you know better than them. Christ here teaches us what it looks like to do the will of God. Is it not fascinating that, that really the only thing we know about him from his presentation at the temple to the, the beginning of his ministry 30 years later is that he studied the scriptures and he submitted. He obeyed those whom God had placed over him, even bearing patiently with their failings, as Lord's Day 39 says. For by their hand, God willed to rule him. What condescension. What humility. 
And by his example, he teaches us likewise to submit to those whom God places over us. Aware of our relation to God, taught by the word of God, strengthened by the grace of God, and so obeying the commands of God. That's what Jesus teaches us here as he shows us what it looks like to be a covenant child. As he teaches us what it looks like to be a true man, dependent on the spirit of God, taught by the word of God, conscious of who we are in relation to God, we then obey the commands of God. Jesus is teaching us here what it looks like to live in the purest way possible. Boys and girls, he is here at your example. As we'll saying in just a few minutes, all throughout his wondrous childhood, he would honor and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. Christ is here your example of what it looks like to be a godly son or daughter. And yet beyond that, as this passage here spans the the periods of his infancy all the way to his public ministry, we're to take this passage as a comprehensive summation of all his life. So he is not only an example to children, but to all of us. Commentator Daryl Bach says this section here is a a pre-ministry account of Jesus' life that serves as a prologue and forecast of all that is to come in the rest of the gospel. And so the obedience that we see here is characteristic of all his life and ministry. So that in his devotion to the word, in his obeying the will of God, he teaches all of us what it looks like to be truly human. He is our supreme example. And yet more than that, even when we fail, the good news of the gospel is that by grace through faith, his obedience is imputed to us. Like we saw with his his circumcision, this is not only Christ obeying, but Christ obeying in our place. Him doing what you and I have failed to do in our apathy toward the scriptures, in our rebellion against our parents, in our not being about the things of our Father, but loving the things of this world, in our not loving the place where where God himself condescends here to to dwell with us and be worshipped by us. As we look at ourselves against the mirror of Christ's obedience, we see our failure. Yet the good news of the gospel is that the one who perfectly obeyed is the same one whose sacrifice is here foreshadowed in the lamb who was slain at the feast at which Christ is here present. He is not only the obedient son, but he is the perfect Passover lamb sacrificed in our place as, as prefigured last time, the shedding of his own blood at just eight days old. So that by grace through faith, his perfect record of obedience might be given to you, the one who is fully God, son of the Father, yet fully man, son of Mary, who grew in wisdom and stature, and so is fully able, fully qualified to pay for your sins, as by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the full weight of God's wrath. That's what we confess in Lord's Days 5 and 6. Jesus, as we see in this passage, is 
fully God, son of the Father, fully man, son of Mary, who grew in wisdom and stature. He is perfectly righteous all about the things of his Father, and yet he is also the Passover lamb in whom all the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law will be fulfilled as he bleeds and dies at the cross, strengthened once again by God's Spirit, so that you and I might have life. And what Luke is here doing for us at the very beginning of this gospel in this prologue to the rest of it is commending to us this perfect Savior. And he is calling us like he has done so often with the response of Mary and others to the Christ who is here revealed. He's calling us like Mary in in verses uh, 51 and 52 to treasure up all of these things in our hearts. To ponder here the mystery of the incarnation, the human and divine natures of Christ joined in one person. To ponder here the glories of the obedient son who is also the Passover lamb and to then fall on our faces like Simeon and Anna in the passage just before this in faith-filled worship, confessing that this child is the Christ who saves us from our sin. And then by his grace shares with us his same spirit that by the, the grace upon grace that overflows from him, we might learn to walk in this kind of obedience that Christ here models. He is in this passage, beloved, both our Savior and our example, covering our sins when we fail, but then filling us with his spirit to make us like him. As we're taught by his word, we're strengthened by his grace, as we're conscious of who we are in him, by grace through faith, as we behold in the sacred pages of Scripture, like this passage here, the glory and beauty of Christ the Son. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the perfect obedience of the 12-year-old Jesus, the perfect obedience of Christ that is imputed to us by grace through faith how he perfectly obeyed every one of your laws, how he perfectly obeyed his parents, how he perfectly set his heart to study your word and be about the things of his father, to love your house and have a zeal for it, all of which covers our disobedience, our apathy towards your word, our rebellion against our parents and those in authority over us, our lack of interest in your house and in your worship, even right now, this morning. Lord, as we have beheld the obedient son again this day, was also the Passover lamb who sheds his blood for our disobedience. We pray that by your spirit, you would make us grateful. You would fill our hearts with faith and with gratitude that you would make any here who do not know this perfect son to ponder in their hearts and treasure up all of these things, the perfect humanity of Jesus, the full divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, his perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice for all who receive him by faith. Lord, we thank you for this perfect picture of the only perfect man who ever lived. And pray that you would also make us grateful that filled with his same spirit, we might be made more and more like him. Pray this for our children, that they would love your word, hide it in their hearts, even as we resume Sunday school and catechism, day school, that you would make them more and more to love your word, 
should make them more and more to honor and obey their parents and those in authority over them and that they would seek, as we'll sing in just a moment, to follow after the example of this perfect child. We pray in Jesus' name.